one more time before we get comfortable for the next few moments. And uh, let's find a screen where it's good for you to read. The, the title of the message is called Get in Agreement. Look at your neighbor and say, Get in Agreement. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. Read this with me, please. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and we also speak. So we also speak. Okay, I, I have, I've memorized this in King James and they've moved those words around. Uh, a little bit. So get that last section uh, written, I believe, right there. I believed and so I spoke. We also believed and so we also speak. Uh, let's go ahead this morning and grab our text for today. This is the today's message found in uh, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 19. And this is how it goes. Read with me. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. This is the famous passage talking about the principle of agreement. Some of you have probably heard some teaching on this. This is the substance, the foundation of what we want to speak to for about the next 30 minutes this morning. And so we're going to talk about the importance of being in agreement, not only in prayer with the Father and with what the Word says, but getting in agreement with each other. And so let's bow our hearts together and ask the Lord to help us today. God, we thank you for this time and worship. Thank you for your presence. Thank you that you are the cornerstone. What the builders rejected, Father, you set up and you've caused Jesus Christ to be the very cornerstone of the building, the temple of God of which we are. God, we thank you that what you're doing is absolutely marvelous in our eyes. We know that this is the day of the Lord and we rejoice. We're glad in it. We ask you right now by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit that you open eyes to see and ears to hear, that you resurrect folks from spiritual death in this service this morning. God, that you take the gospel that in it alone has the power to transform a life. We thank you that though the law tells us to behave, thank you for the simplicity of the gospel that tells us to believe. And with it, you bring the grace to bring change into our hearts and to our lives. And we ask you this. We, we give you honor and glory and praise. I just acknowledge that before you and all these people that I can't do anything apart from you. But God, I'm thankful today that in Christ I can do all things. You strengthen me in the anointing. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. So we're, we're talking about say it. We're talking about the importance of confessing things. Confessing not only the negative idea of speaking sin that has been committed and God granting forgiveness and cleansing us from unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. But the positive side of confession, which means the proclamation of faith. So we are declaring the first Sunday we opened up with the Apostles' Creed. The Latin word credo means I believe. And so every one of the great creeds of the church that have been used for 18, 1900 years the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, a number of these great ones that are recognized transdenominationally because they declare what we would consider to be the very critically important fundamentals of the faith over which, as true Christians, as biblical Christians, we will not argue. There are a lot of non-essentials that we have room for disagreement over, but it's these things on which we say we will agree. 
God is Father. Jesus Christ is His Son. He was crucified, suffered under Pontius Pilate, born of the Virgin Mary. All of those things, the, the, the efficacy, the effectiveness of His blood, grace that is given to us, forgiveness of sins, uh, the, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. All of these things are critical elements for which we say we will agree. We will get in agreement with them. So this morning we're, we're going to move beyond just merely agreeing with a principle or with a theological idea, but we're going to talk about, I, I believe, what is some, sometimes can be an almost inexplicable kind of connection that God brings between you and someone in the Spirit, a lot of times between me and my wife, where we, we stand in agreement together. And we're going to talk about what that means this morning because this passage that we just read says that if, that if two of you, now we misquote it all the time, you will hear people say, if any two of you. And that's not what the Bible says. It says, if two of you. How many of you know you can't get in agreement with just anybody? But it's two of you that are of like mind and like precious faith and in the spirit. If you get in agreement together, the Bible says nothing will be withheld from you. It will be done for you by my Father which is in heaven. Whatever you ask in prayer, stand in agreement, it says. Okay. And so to quickly review, we've had two messages prior to this. I'm not going to give you all the points, but just the one things are the things that I want you to really remember, get a hold of. So in the review, this just one sentence per each message. Number one, we talked about the importance and the power of our words. And we basically said that belief in the heart is activated by words in the mouth. Everybody remember that one? So I believe things in my heart. It's activated by what I speak. That happens in salvation. I believe into righteousness. Confession is made into salvation. It happens in marriage. I'm joined in my heart to my spouse, to someone that I love, that God's called me to be in unity with. And I stand before people and I make a confession of vows and I make an oath in the, with God as my witness, with witnesses who stand and who, who sign on the dotted line and say, we've stood with you and we saw this happen and we heard it with our ears. And so all of these are about oral uh, proclamations, their oral covenants. We are, we are cutting something with this very dangerous yet very powerful little thing here called the tongue. So last week we talked about the power of life and death in the tongue and the one phrase, the one sentence of our one thing was words are containers that carry power producing messages. Say that with me. Words are containers that carry power producing messages. We're not going to review the message. That in itself gives it to you. If you want to go back and hear that again, Check out victorywired.com, and you'll be able to pull up. Uh, these things are free. You can, you can subscribe at iTunes at Victory Church of the Mid-South and get them updated. Usually they go up on Sunday afternoon. Sometimes if there's a little bit of a complication, Monday will be the latest that it will ever be put up right after the Sunday services. Okay? So today, that brings us to where we are. That's our review. This is our one thing. Say this out loud with me. Here we go. Impossible things become possible when a group of people believe and say the same thing. How many of you believe what we just said? you believe that's true? Say it again. Here we go. Impossible things become possible when a group of people believe and say the same thing. And so this morning, we're, we're looking at this very important text in Matthew chapter 18. And I want to move quickly to my first point. The first point is the symphony of agreement. Everybody say symphony. Now, you wonder why I'm using a musical term. Well, we know you're musical and you like to play and teach and enjoy all these different styles. 
symphony just sounds so classical. Where, where does this word even come from? And, and really, what is the distinction? What makes the difference between a symphony orchestra and just an orchestra? An orchestra can be a, a group of you know, 8, 10, 12, 15 pieces. A symphony is very different in that it is, it, it is required that it has all of the functioning parts of brass and woodwinds and percussion and, all, and strings. So you have violins, you have cellos, you have violas. So you have these four major categories that are represented in a symphony. A symphony is very much like the body of Christ. It, it, it demands that there are all of the representation of the members of the body, each functioning in the place in which they're supposed to operate. Uh, what, do you, what do you think it would be like if you attended the Memphis Symphony Orchestra performance? And let me just draw this line one more time because I want you to see that, that all symphonies are orchestras, but not all orchestras are symphonies. Okay, So we can have a little small 15-piece band and call it an orchestra and be correct. But a symphony demands that it has those four big categories, all represented of strings and brass and woodwinds and percussion. All that stuff is going on. And every one of them has a function. It has a place. A symphony is a complex piece of music that usually comes in several movements. And, and, it, and it will highlight through those movements as it develops uh, a musical idea or a theme that will represent every one of those four major groups. The strings will have a portion to play. Sometimes they'll be on the top and lead it. Other times they'll be the foundation in which the brass will come out and the trumpets will sound and the trombones will slide. Other times it'll be a nice flute or a clarinet and it'll be, it will be emphasizing something that is very subdued but yet still has a very powerful musical message. So all of those are working together. We get this this, this Western idea of what a symphony works from because it comes from a Greek word. It's in your notes. I don't have it on the screen this morning. But this word that we read this morning out of Matthew chapter 18, and I'm going to read it to you one more time, verse 19. It says, Again I say to you, if two of you agree. Everybody say agree. agree. See how I have it highlighted in the notes on the screen this morning. If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. The Greek word for agree is symphoneo. You can see it there in your notes. That is the transliteration. It looks almost identical to the word symphony. And so it's the idea, if, if, if we give you a really hard literal translation, sim, S-Y-M, means together, and phoneo, you can see phone. You can almost see iPhone right there. Now, forgive me for all of you Android aliens, okay? Uh, I'm just teasing. But you can see phone there. Phone is the word sound. And so if we give you a really literal hard translation of the word, it would mean to sound together. So a symphony sounds together. When you get in agreement with someone in your house, husbands and wives together, and you push out strife and you push out disagreement, dis is anything that undoes what is it's in front of. If you are disillusioned, the illusion is lost. If you're in disagreement, you have just crushed agreement. Okay. So when you push dis out and you get dis out your house, <laughs> then you can begin to sound together. You can get an agreement. Now, can you imagine what it would be like if you went to the Memphis Symphony Orchestra and the concertmaster, which is always the first chair violinist, he's the one that will stand up and sound a concert B-flat, and all of the other instruments will start tuning to him or her. 
whether the concert master is male or female, he will sound the concert B-flat and just keep that thing going with, with as few waves in it as possible so that it's this clear, constant sound. And so against that sound, they will measure and they will tune their instruments. The, the, the brass will be adjusting their mouthpiece. Their embouchure will be uh, right and the, the, the woodwinds will be adjusting the reed on their mouthpiece, and they'll be getting their embouchure right. Uh, the strings will all be making minor adjustment in the strings so that they make sure that everybody is tuned together. And if you've ever been to the performance of a symphony orchestra, literally those probably last five minutes before you know they're about to be performed is some of the most awful sound you've ever heard in your life because it's just scratching. How many of you have ever been to the symphony before? Or you've at least seen it on television? Okay, and they're tuning, and it's just, I mean, it's just about everything imaginable. You're going, how are they making sense out of this? And they're all making sure that they're not sharp or flat, and, and they want to hit the tone. Intonation is a musical idea where we want to be spot on, and it's, it's not varying from here it's going sharp or here it's going flat. How many of you know when you can't hit that note, it usually if someone is really musical, it can just about drive them crazy. And most folks who have at least an ear to appreciate what they know what sounds right, they may not be musical, but they just go, mm, that doesn't sound right. That's shrill. Or man, the dude was flat. And so intonation is important. You want to get yourself in tune with. And how many of you know Jesus is our concert master? He's the one who's sounding the tone without any waves. It's one sound. And his life has given us a demonstration, a picture of what it means to... To, to get in tune and in a, an alignment with the kingdom of God. And that is because he is the king of the kingdom. Somebody say amen. amen. So let's just say, uh, you know, second chair um, saxophone decides that he, he doesn't like the symphony they've chosen. They don't want to play Beethoven. He wants to play Rachmaninoff and do a concerto. How ridiculous would it be if you've got various folks just mutinying, jumping ship, and doing whatever they want to? What makes a symphony wonderful, what makes this band sound right, is that we have the instruments tuned, and the vocalists are intonation. Their intonation is on. It's spot on. We're singing harmonies, and we're trying to make sure that there's not sharp or flat. And A lot of that has to do with whether you can hear yourself. And I could stop and really talk about this principally, but the way we hear ourselves is allowing community with someone else to kind of bounce back, and we have a sharing and a give and a take. And when we share things that are not in the Word and somebody kind of pushes back and go, no, you're a little sharp there. You know, maybe you need to humble yourself a little bit and let's see what the Word says and let's get a little bit more in tune or in line. Or, you know, maybe you're a little flat, you're depressed. Let's, let's inject some faith and let's, let's get you sharpened up in your walk a little bit because, because the tune that you're singing is a little gloomy, it's a little flat, and the Lord wants to pull you back up and, and get it all leveled out. Remember, the Bible says when the King comes, every valley will be exalted and every mountain will be made low. That's basically geologically saying the same thing. We're going to get all the ripples and the waves out. And we're all going to get in tune and start saying the same thing. Are you hearing me? Now, you can't have beautiful harmony until you at least have tune together. You can try to harmonize, but if you're all not in the same key, it's going to be the most awful caterwauling you've ever heard in your life. Are you getting anything out of this? Okay, so we want to get an agreement together. 
impossible things become possible when a group of people believe and say the same thing. So, symphoneo is to agree. Literally, it means to sound together. Principle number two, point number two. So we're going to ask the question, okay, this is cool. I see the Greek word connection. I see symphoneo in the Greek means agree, translates agree, and we get the word symphony from it. I see the great illustration, pastor, and all of this. But, you know, does this stuff really work? Okay, we're going to go to an Old Testament example and answer that question. I want you to look with me because we're going to go all the way back to the book of Genesis where the city of man first began to be built. You'll remember the story because this is the unified purpose of man and humanism coming together to erect a tower into the heavens. And I want you to see as we read the text. I'm going to take time to comment as we go through. Here we go. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. No, no necessary comments here. That's pretty obvious. Number two. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Verse 3. And they what? Read it with me. Said to one another. So here we go. We're saying it. We're communicating. Somebody said one time, the myth of communication is that it happened. And you'll get that in a minute. The whole idea is that I share one thing and you may hear something entirely different because sometimes there's some static between the sender and the receiver. They said to one another, here we go, come, let us make. Everybody say, let us make. Okay, so we've got a purpose. We're going to have an action plan. We have a vision. We're, we have goals. We're going to make some bricks because we're going to build something. And so they're setting their plan. They're communicating their idea. And they're going to show us how critical it is for something to be successful. Communication has to be clear. As a matter of fact, there's a principle that I want to give you. Unity of purpose depends on clarity of communication. Unity of purpose depends on clarity of communication. Come on, how many of you know that when children find out that they can play both sides off the middle because daddy's soft at this spot and mama's soft over there and they, can, they don't go ask mama where she's hard on things and daddy's easy and they end up playing. You know, kids, kids, kids don't have a professional education, but oh, they're so smart. They can learn how to play you like a first chair fiddle. And unless moms and dads out of love, have a unified purpose in what they're attempting to accomplish and how you build your family, how you're going to do the manners of your house, how you're going to treat each other in your relationships, uh, the level of respect that's going to be the fundamental bottom line of how you conduct business in your lives, how you treat each other, uh, whether you tell the truth. All of these issues of integrity and communication obviously come into play. And so if parents are going to raise good, stable, godly children that become champions, moms and dads have to have unity of purpose. And unity of purpose depends on clarity of communication. So these people come together and they say, we're going to make something. We'll make some bricks, burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Verse 4. Then they said, everybody say said. They said, come let us build. So we've made some bricks, but that's not the end. That's the means to the end. We've made bricks because we want to build a city. And so they said, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make. Here we go. This really unveils the primary purpose for why they were doing what they were doing. Everybody say motive. Everybody say intents of the heart. Say that. Intents of the heart. So 
I really believe, and think about this with me, I really believe God didn't have trouble with people building a city. I believe making bricks is great. I believe communicating the vision to make some bricks, to build a city. Let us make bricks. Let us build a city. I think that's fine. I think it can even have its top in the heavens. But I think the reason God was disturbed and came down and scrambled the languages, the communication among all of these peoples, and sent them dispersed over the earth is because of this line right here. Read it with me. Let us make a what? A name for ourselves. That's the spirit of humanism right there. This, this is the whole change from the medieval culture where God was the standard of everything. And in the early Renaissance, Leonardo da Vinci began to propose ideas of humanism and he drew his Vitruvian man, the long-haired Adonis, muscles everywhere, and if you know the, the, the one I'm talking about, he's, he's, he's uncovered, he's, he's in the nude, he's naked. And so there, he's showing the proportions in this perfect circle, how everything relates. Did you know that your foot is the same length between the distance between your elbow and your wrist? Now don't try it right now. Some of you are already trying to pull your leg up in the chair. <laughs> now I've got a pretty big foot, and honest, I've tried it, and it, it, it is. The, the body is amazingly made. And as long as we recognize that God is the creator and we give God glory, that's fine. But Leonardo starts putting man, he removes God from the throne, and he starts to put man, which this is the very spirit of humanism, man becomes the standard of judgment for all things. And how many of you know we've been in a downward spiral ever since then? It took a few hundred years for these ideas to catch on and for the enlightenment to come and then remove faith from its primary position uh, in the hearts of the people and replace it with science, okay? And so what we see literally is not what began with Leonardo, but this literally began millennia ago when they said, let's make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And it's interesting because what they said God's going to do anyway. Here we go, verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, I believe that God's interested in what you're building. I believe He's interested in how you are conducting your business, the, the entrepreneurial spirit that you have, the, the way you choose to make decisions on how you're going to treat people. What is economic justice as it relates to your, your business concept? How, how are you treating your family? How are you treating your customers? What, where do the poor fit into? What, what, what kind of wage are you paying people? Are you being righteous? Are you being fair? Uh, beyond all the political ideas that are here that I don't have any desire to get into, it just really comes down to what are you building and how is this thing founded? What is, it, is it built on something that is solid? So God comes down to see, and I believe he comes down to your family to see the relationships. I believe he comes down to a church to see the government and the peace of the Lord that's there. And, and when the Holy Spirit is moving, it means that people pretty much are learning to do what was negative in this situation literally has a positive side. If we can have this one language and say the same words, nothing will be impossible for us. That is if our motives are right. Are you hearing me? Because look what the Lord says. God comes down, verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are, everybody say it, one people, and they all have what? One language. And read it with me. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. So this is the power of unity and communication. 
Clarity of communication will establish unity of purpose when we learn how to do and say. But secondly, the second principle I want you to see is that motive is everything in building. Motive in building means everything to God. It says, and nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. God says, these folks have got it down. They've learned how to not let everything get tied up in the committees. They've learned how to stop backbiting each other. They've learned how to stop having their leaders for lunch. They've learned how to stop criticizing the other workers on their teams and their crews. These folks literally have their act together because they have one, they're one people, one language, using the same words. They have the same idea. They're making, they're building, and they're accomplishing something great. And God says, all of that's amazing, it's wonderful, but they have the wrong motive. They're building a name for themselves. God says, I'm not going to have it. Because this literally is only the beginning and nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Verse 7, come let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not, everybody read it, understand one another's speech. We've been having problems ever since then. I think the classic are the old ideas of men are from Mars, men are from Venus. Come on, guys, have you, have, you, have you been married long enough that when you ask her if she's okay and she says, I'm fine, it means she's not fine? Why confuse us simple-minded dudes like that, ladies? We, we, we can't figure it out sometimes. We'd rather just, just go on and be blunt and tell us really what you're thinking. Well, you're supposed to figure it out. Well, and so since, since this mix-up, since this scrambling of languages, we've had all of these critical things that have begun to happen. They do not understand one another's speech. Verse 8, here we go. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they what? Left off building the city. Wow. Verse 8, one more verse, and we're going to finish. Here we go. Therefore, its name was called what? Babel. So when we think of babbling, like babies babble on, that's where the word Babylon comes from. So Babel, the Tower of Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. If, if, if what we're saying can be confused, then we can be defeated. Now, the Lord brought the confusion to bring defeat this time. But what, what I want you to see is, is had their motive been right, God wants to bless building. Because there are two cities that are being built in Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. But thank God, if you read to the end of the book, Babylon falls and the city that stands and is triumphant is not the city of man, it's the city of God. It's called the kingdom of God. And we can't run and build and operate the city of God the way we run and build and operate the city of man. First of all, I, I want to chase the rabbit and I'm going to say one thing and leave it alone. The city of God's not built with bricks. Bricks are man-made. They're all shaped the same. They're all conformed to the same image. The city of God's built out of stones and every one of them are different. Everybody say living stones. That means one's got a little shape over here and, and, and it just, it's just so cool because... The, the funky shape that you have, God has uniquely made you to fit into the wall with somebody else that's got something that will complement your strangeness. Come on, are you hearing me this morning? You're a creative person. Guess what? God can put you around somebody that can help bring, bring pragmatic ideas and stabilize you. Many times that's the reason uh, really great marriages are opposites that have been attracted to each other. Because you're a funny-shaped stone in one way, and she looks another kind of way, and you, the thing comes together, and you guys just fit. 
And, and the struggle begins then in, in really sitting down and getting face-to-face and getting intimate with one another in your words, in your conversation, and clarity, communication comes. Motive of the heart are revealed. When you get an agreement, there's nothing that will be impossible to you as a man and a woman of God. That's not just your being in agreement together, but it's your being in agreement with the word of the Lord. This is the challenge and the charge, point three. Psalm 133, the challenge and the charge. Listen, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers, what? Dwell in unity. Everybody say, get in unity. And number two, it is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. From there, the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Three verses, three tiny little verses found in the the. the the, the, the last quarter of the 150 Psalms, Psalm, 150, Psalm 133. And so it says, how amazing it is when you can get some brothers to lay aside their differences and actually dwell, live with unified purpose and, and saying the same thing, getting an agreement. And this is what he starts to do. The other two verses after it describes the power that comes when people get in unity, when they receive the challenge and they make the decision that I'm going to get in unity with my husband, with my wife. I, I, I'm gonna, we're going to stand together and I'm going to get in unity in my church. doesn't mean you don't ever have a problem, but it means you decide the right way that you're going to handle that problem. Because there's a way that will destroy unity... And you can still be in unity and actually not necessarily agree with everything. How many of you know if you're going to be in the symphony, you might even play something that you don't like. But because you know that you're called to be a part of something bigger, and 99% of the time you love what you're doing, it's just that, and let me, let's just all be honest, let's get real. People are people, and we all have some things to do that we don't like to do. Come on, everybody in the room that's got a job, you have some stuff on your job description that if you could just take white out and just pour a gallon of paint on it and cover it up and, and forget about it, you would love to be able to forget those items on your job description. And especially that line, other duties as a sign, that's, that's demonic. <laughs> and it always means do them with a good attitude. Man, I just, I just don't know if I can dwell in unity in this entrepreneurial environment here. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Well, if you want a paycheck, if you want to be able to accomplish a great purpose, if you want to go home at the end of the day with satisfaction knowing that you've done something that has provided, whether it's a service or whether it's a product and it blesses people and literally, if you can start to think in kingdom terms about what you're doing sitting in that cubicle, answering those calls, dealing with the complaints, assuaging customers that are upset, and bringing peace, you're literally ministering the shalom of God. Are you hearing what I'm saying? If you can start to see yourself as a minister in the marketplace and see that God wants you to make your every days holy to the Lord, it's not just Sunday that's holy to God, but it's Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. God wants 24-7, 365 every day of your life, every breath you breathe. Come on, somebody. If we can learn to get an agreement with that, it's amazing what God will do. This is what he says. It's like the precious oil on the head. This is a picture of the high priest running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's the idea of the high priest being anointed with the anointing oil. And it runs down over his head 
over his beard, the collars of his robes, down to the... Another translation says to the skirts of his garments. So all the way down. What I want you to see is when we get in unity, the same anointing that is on Jesus the head will be on us the body. It will run down the collars of the robe. It will be over the skirts of your garments. The same anointing that's on the head will also be on the feet. The same anointing that's on the head will be on the hands. The same anointing. When we choose to get in unity together, what is in Jesus' mouth and what is in Jesus' heart will come out of our mouths because it will be in our hearts as well. Look at your neighbor and say, get in unity. Look at this one. Verse 3, it's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. This is, speaks of the presence of the Lord. Dew. You know, just a little quick thought. Folk all the time pray for a deluge. They want a flood of the Holy Spirit. But there, there, are, there are floods that come that are like generational, 100 years. Just here about three years ago, the Mississippi flooded, and they were actually talking about it being a 500-year flood. They were scared that the levee might not hold. And in every generation, we experience, people all over the earth will experience what they call a hundred-year flood. It's, it's, it's levels that have never been experienced before. And so I see that as like a revival of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There are seasonal rains that come. And that is, there, there are times in local churches and in pockets, just like right now, we have expected scattered thunderstorms today here in our area. And, and there will be this precipitation that will come down on some areas and not rain on others. And so we, we want to keep our hearts right and have an open heart so that there will be an open heaven and God will pour down His presence and His Holy Spirit. But many times folks are looking for the hundred-year flood or they're waiting for the scattered thunderstorm and they're not even going out and appreciating the daily dew of the presence of the Lord. Spending time and devotion. Are you hearing me? Come on. Every bit of it's a little bit of moisture. It's a little bit of refreshing. I can have some plants that need watering. And if I haven't had a chance to get a hose to them and it hasn't rained, sometimes just a little morning dew can freshen the plant. And what I want to say to you is if you'll just spend a little time every day and, and, and pray and open the Bible. We're not talking about reading 20 chapters. We're just talking about reading a verse and meditating on it and chewing on it. It's amazing how God will just cause the dew to begin to settle. His presence will come. What are we saying? We're saying that the same presence that's on Zion, the highest mountain in Israel, the same dew that's on God's highest mountain will also be over all of the other little mountains, the little hills, over all the people of God. Look at this, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing. Rightly motivated unity brings the presence of the Lord. There is divine life and blessed unity. There, in that place of unity, God commands the blessing. When we decide we are going to walk together, be one people, say the same thing, then God says, I'm going to show up. As a matter of fact, this very same passage that we read in Matthew 18, it says, for where two or three of you gather together in my name... There am I in the midst of them. It's one of my favorite teachers out of the early 70s charismatic movement, Bob Mumford, said it this way. He said, this is the Mumford translation. He says, three of you, when two or three of you can get your act together, I'll show up just to see it. <laughs> Think about that. God says, if you can get an agreement just a little bit, I'll bring my presence and show up. And with synergy, we'll, we'll exponentially inject this thing into the whole next dimension. You talk about going to another level. If we get the presence of God on our process and on our product and on our purpose and on our vision, 
it can't help but be blessed. Somebody say amen. All right, last thing, and I'm finished this morning. Uh, let's get 1 Corinthians 1.10. This is good. I'll, I'll just read through it. No, no comment. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you what? Agree. agree. King James says, say the same thing. That all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. A division is a separated vision. Therefore, the vision dies. Division. You see that? No divisions among you and that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That's the Apostle Paul. Finally, last point this morning and I'm finished quickly. Say amen to God's yes. This is where it becomes practical. In our prayer lives, in standing together in agreement as a local congregation for the blessing of the Lord on this church to touch the delta, to advance the kingdom of God, to see dead, spiritually dead people raised to newness of life. Say amen to God's yes. Here we go. Look, 2 Corinthians 1, 19 and 20. Two verses and I'm finished. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, which is kind of confusing. Yes sometimes, no sometimes. But he says, but in him it is always yes. Read that loud, out loud with me, please. In Him, it is always yes. Who is Him? Christ. Everybody say, in Christ. In Christ, it is always yes. Here we go. Verse 20. For all the what? How many of you know you have some promises? There's 8,000 of them in the Bible. Actually, a little north of 8,000. Promises of God. Do you know you can walk far beneath the life that God sent His Son to die for you, if you just don't even have a clue, just sort of existing in life and don't have any idea what all the promises of God are for you. Because when you learn how, like your grandmother used to sing, standing on the promises of Christ my King, we learn to stand in faith. We learn to get in agreement with the promises of God. Here we go. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we what? We utter our amen to God for His glory. Now, amen is a totally churchified word. It's Christianese in its highest form. Because you, unless you're in a religious culture, which is the Bible Belt South, you will never hear somebody at work say amen, unless they're a church person. Because amen is a word you don't learn anywhere except what? Church. It follows your prayers. It's the nice, tidy, finish up, Sort of box it up, tie a bow on it, hand it to God. That's how you do it. You say, blah, 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 amen. Or if you're very formal, thou great God, amen. I don't care how you say it. Does anybody know what amen means? Do you know what amen means? Everybody say, so be it. Say, so be it. So God's promises to you are yes, and then you say what? So be it. So when you get in agreement with what the word of the Lord says about your life and you recognize he's already said yes to healing you in the middle of your sickness, you realize he's already said yes to prospering what you put your hand to, you realize he's already said yes to your successfully finishing that test so you can be certified and you can get a promotion and you can with that promotion have a higher level of income so you can bless your family. Uh, pastor Jeremy, our wonderful youth pastor here, just got certified with his property casualty 
uh, uh, insurance certification. And so just excited about him having multiple streams of income to be able to bless his family. And he called me, he says, Pastor, I really need you to pray. I've, I've worked hard, I've gone to the classes, and I want to do well. I said, Brother, I'm going to get in agreement with you in the name of Jesus. And I prayed and I said, Father, thank you that you bless his memory, that you bring all things into his remembrance, speak them to him. Literally, Father, just, just let him just blow this thing out of the water. And we're thankful to say that he is now certified in his insurance property casualty. And, and I, so the, the word of the Lord was yes. It's yes. But too many times we don't apprehend the yeses that God has for us because we don't say, so be it. We, we, we believe that God is able... Matter of fact, if you ask anybody on the street, most folks in America will tell you, yes, God is powerful. God is able to change my circumstances. But when you ask them the next question, number two, this is the critical one. But do you believe God is willing to do it for you? Well, I don't know. And that's where the real rubber meets the road. When we decide to get in agreement and say, so be it, amen, to God's yeses. You know what? That first began for some of you years ago when you heard the gospel and you got an agreement with it and you said, God, I am a sinner and I need a Savior. Jesus Christ, forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart. Change me. You know what you did? You said yes to the promise when he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. That's God's yes and then when you say, so be it in my life, amen, amen, Father, I believe that. I receive your yes, and I stand in agreement. Now, this is a little bit of a kind of a crude economic understanding of it, but it's like a two-party check on the bank of heaven. It already has Jesus Christ signed on one line. But this is a joint account. And Jesus is not going to do anything apart from being a gentleman. He's not going to force you to do anything. You have to say amen to his yes. You have to sign in faith your name, wherever it is. I, I have a tendency to think that his is the foundation. His is the bottom line. We just sort of connected an adjoining to it. But that's when we become one. Two become one. Yes are the promises of God. Amen. We utter the amen to the glory of God. When you utter the amen to any one of God's yes promises, get out of the way because heaven and earth are about to move. You can say to the mountain, move. You can say, be cast into the sea. You can speak life to something that looks like it's dead. You, 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 you can curse and bind something that is attempting to destroy and bring destruction into your life. You can curse confusion and ignorance and poverty and you can loose blessing and, and forgiveness and relationship building and communication and clarity and purpose and destiny and faith and the peace of God and the promises of God and the prosperity of God. Are you hearing what I'm saying to you this morning? How many of you know God has said yes to some amazing things for your lives? What we have to do, this is a cool message, so what? It's not so what, it's so that. God's given me a yes, and I have to say amen, so that the promises of God begin to move and operate in my life. I get in agreement with the word of the Lord. 
What's the Bible say about your situation? Have you struggled? Have you fallen this week? Have you sinned? Don't waste any time hanging out with somebody that can't help you. Run straight to Jesus and say, I confess it. I'm sorry. I renounce it. I turn from it in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord, for grace and mercy to help me, strengthen me. Agree with what the Word says about you. And now that you're a new creation in Christ, start agreeing with what He says about who you are now. That you're the righteousness of God in Christ. That you're the blessed of the Lord. You're not under a curse because Jesus became a curse to take the curse off of you. You're not under the wrath of God. God's not angry with you. God's crazy about you. Come on, are you hearing what I'm saying this morning? Come on, I'm going to preach somebody happy in this room today. And i got to quit. Bow your heads with me, please. Gracious God.